0: Joining me now on Our Town is Kirk Malenick and Rachel Pearson, and we are going to talk the Winter Music Festival 2020. We're doing it all again. How are you guys doing? We're doing great. How are you, George? Not too bad. Happy New Year. Thank you. Happy New Year to you. Yes, sir. So coming up in just a couple of weeks there, January 24th, 25th, and 26th, a three-day event, always great music. Let's start off with, uh, you've got some things that happened prior to the actual ticket-sailed event,
1: right, for the kids? Correct. It's called the Kiwanis Kids Concert, and the local Florence Kiwanis Club has generously sponsored pretty much the whole cost of that concert. But other people, too, have have chipped in because they love the kids and they know what it means to the school districts in town. And that will be run by Annie Savage. She's with the Greg Blake Band, and they are an amazing, hot, but also a lot of fun Bluegrass band, very approachable, and Annie is a Ph.D. candidate in music education. Oh, cool. And a fiddler.
0: Now, introducing the kids to, I'm assuming you've, you go to these concerts when they have them, introducing these kids to the bluegrass music, what, is that, what does that look like on the kids' faces?
1: It's wonderful because they get an introduction to a real instrument, and what that looks like, it's not a YouTube video. It's someone standing up there responding in kind. And the, our performers always encourage the students to participate. We just need to keep them from bouncing in the seats because then it becomes kind of a roller coaster ride. But uh, the enthusiasm level is very high.
0: Well, because I know, and, and maybe, maybe it's just me and maybe other people experience the way you guys can tell me if this is the case or not. But, like, I love to watch a live hockey game, but I don't like watching it on TV. I love to listen to live bluegrass music, but I don't necessarily listen to it, you know, In over car, the radio or the car yeah. or anything. Mm-hmm. But but it's it's some one of those things when it's live, it's just so much, it's just so much more there for you. I mean, it's it, it feels live. You know
2: what I'm
1: saying? It's true roots music of America. I'll let Kirk talk about the history of bluegrass just a bit.
2: All right, Kirk. Yeah. So basically, yeah, it goes back to. Uh... Turn of the century and beyond, the music came from Scotland and Ireland and ended up in the Appalachian Mountains here in the United States of America. And it's just good old-fashioned roots music, like Rachel said. And when, in a live setting, it does draw you in. And the, the, the look on the kids' faces is quite remarkable. Some of these kids have never been in a theater like the Florence Event Center. And so they're coming from Mapleton. They're coming from Reedsport. They're coming from our very own school district here in Florence. And to Rachel's credit, she's the only person who endures in this thing. This will be her 19th one. She started it, and she continues it. And imagine all the kids' lives that have been touched. I, for example, was introduced to music at about the same age. And went on to become a good guitar player and singer because of it. And there are other stories like that where you get introduced to it, you're sucked into the music, and you want to do it yourself.
0: I, I was kind of the same way. I, <clears throat> excuse me, I didn't become a good guitar player, uh, but I did. I did pick it up very young after seeing it live, and then living for twenty some years right at the foot of the Appalachians. You know, I got to hear some of that uh, bluegrass, you know, right there. I mean,
2: where it originated from. It or, doesn't get yeah. more authentic than that. And no. Greg Blake himself comes from West Virginia, so he's a he, he's, he's bona fide as well.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so that that's kind of the 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 Christmas concert, not the Christmas concert, the the kids concert. Then we get into Friday, Saturday, and Sunday uh, events going on. Who wants to start with Friday?
1: I'll just. Chime in that um, I'm actually going to start with Saturday afternoon. Okay. I want to I want to push Greg Blake and Annie and their band because they are amazing, and they'll be around Friday, too. Just They don't have a performance, but they're on their own time and their own dime. They're hanging around to say, we want to be part of this festival and part of this concert oh, cool. experience. So they'll be there Friday, and then they'll play on Saturday again. And if anyone, like I did, got pulled into watching all – 16 hours of Ken Burns country music, this is just going to be icing on the cake. Mm. This, um especially the Saturday, because there's so much great American music. And
2: George, we could argue that the cake itself starts Friday night. And that is with two uh, well known uh, bluegrass bands starting at 7 o'clock with John Reichman and the Jaybirds. John Reichman is a renowned mandolin player and leads a great band. He's originally from Canada, has dual citizenship here. They're going to be starting at 7 o'clock. And, uh, they're followed by the Kathy Callick band. Now, both of these bands are Grammy winners, award winners, International Bluegrass Music Association award winners, and when it comes to bluegrass, it doesn't get any more authentic than this. That's Friday night.
0: I I wanted to play the mandolin, but my fingers were too fat. I couldn't I couldn't do the chords on that. I tried though, but it's good. So that's Friday night now. Um, Just quickly, you can get tickets for each night separately or all together, is that correct?
2: That is correct. We have a two-day pass, which gets you into everything on Friday, Saturday afternoon, and Saturday night, and a three-day pass, which then adds Sunday to the package as well. Okay.
0: Now let's talk a little bit more about Saturday. Now it's just not – am I correct in saying it's just not the evening? It starts early in the afternoon, right?
2: That's correct. So at 1 o'clock on Saturday afternoon, we're going to start with a couple out of Seattle by the name of Chelsea and Benjamin Peck. They call themselves Mr. and Mrs. Something, and they're going to get things kicked off. And that's followed by a well-known Nashville guitarist by the name of Jim Hurst. He'll be performing solo. And uh, he's well known in the Bluegrass Circles, plays all sorts of music, tremendous guitar player, great singer, very engaging performer. And then as Rachel said, it's the Greg Blake Band that takes us home on Saturday afternoon. And he's interesting because not just straight ahead Bluegrass, but he's also a really good country artist as well, authentic country. He's going to be mixing up his set with some of all of that. So. If you don't like bluegrass, that's not a reason just to go to, to not see Greg Blake. You are going to want to see him for a lot of different reasons Saturday afternoon.
0: All right, and then we get into the evening performances, right? That's correct.
1: Yes, and we have an exciting band that was nominated for an IBM IBM A Rising Band Award that last fall, and are called Circus Number no. Nine.
0: I heard they're quite a quite a troupe, so to speak.
1: Energetic. Mm-hmm. You can. You can. Kind of sum it up in one word, but also eclectic. They have jazz and um, blue, bluegrass, obviously, with the instruments that they play. But uh, it's going to be an interesting night, and you're going to want to see them before they it's get too a visual too, thing, too, right? Right. Also... Before, and see and hear them before they get too famous.
2: Some people have described them as John Coltrane meets John Hartford. Oh. And for people who know, know music, they know what that means. So yeah. it's going to be very exciting. That's
1: pretty cool. The other thing, and this, this is a gift— from Oregon Pacific Bank to our community, the bank is sponsoring a community concert on Friday evening at 4.30, and it's during banking hours, but everybody's welcome to come in, have coffee and cookies, and listen to Circus Number 9 for oh, cool. an hour. And that's
2: going to be... At the
0: bank?
1: At the bank. Oh, cool. On 101-1355. In the
2: bank lobby, free to all those who can come. And refreshments are being provided by OPB. They've been a really great friend to the festival.
0: Well, that's good. That's good. And then it, that way people will get a little taste of it. Correct. And then they'll want to come back on Friday. I mean, Saturday.
2: Right. And then to, to bring us home on Saturday night is the well-known Livingston Taylor arguably the smarter brother in the Taylor family, is how he likes to advertise himself, James yeah. Taylor's brother. Yeah.
1: Little but, brother.
2: But uh, he's been at this for 50 years. He was born in Boston. That family was born in Boston and grew up in North Carolina. A lot of top 40 hits out of Livingston, including I Will Be In Love With You, I'll Come Running, I Can Dream Of You, and Boatman, several of those recorded by his brother James. But uh, Livingston himself is a, a legend in his own right, continues to tour a lot of dates over the course of a year. Full professor at the Berklee School of Music in Boston, and uh, just a real active fellow. Very engaging performer. Plays the piano, plays the guitar extremely well, and he's going to have us in the palm of his hand within the first few measures that night. Yeah,
0: and you, you don't you don't get very many genius level mu- musicians, but I'm pretty sure that Livingston and James both fit into that category
1: based I, on yes. what they
2: write and played over the years. I concur. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: And thanks to the magic of radio, I am showing you the most wonderful poster of Livingston Taylor in the whole world. Ah. You'll see some of these around town. You'll have to take my word for it. Um, if you're listening to this, but he is just, he's dapper. He's handsome. He's got this engaging smile. And he just, as Kirk said, within 30 seconds, you'll be in his thrall and he'll, he'll do it do 90 minutes of wonderful music and stories.
0: Pretty cool. That's really nice.
2: A Sunday afternoon, we wrap it up with folk. In fact, we have a gentleman coming out of Portland by the name of Tyler Stenson, who's won some awards around Portland area there. And he's writes his own material. He'll be performing solo that afternoon for the first hour from 1 o'clock to 2 o'clock. And then, Rachel, tell us about the, the troupe that's going to uh, finish the festival on Sunday afternoon.
1: That is Kirsten Granger. And her husband, Dan Wetzel, and they are the core of True North Band. They'll perform as the True North duo. And if you like original songwriting by national and international award winners, you're going to love this because that that's what they're known for, really, is their original, heartfelt, um, some might say almost tear-jerking songs, but it, they're not like tear-jerking in a country way. It's because they sing so beautifully and play together. And their husband and wife. And they will also be doing a songwriting workshop.
0: Well, that's
2: very good. Yes, we'd like to add add this year the fact that we spice things up quite a bit. And that is, uh, in addition to the annual Florence Regional Arts Alliance Arts Festival which will be going on Saturday Saturday and Sunday simultaneously. We partitioned out part of the space there on the flat floor to have both on-site jamming this year, starting Friday afternoon before the actual concerts start, but also workshops, and specifically two workshops on Saturday morning, starting at 9 o'clock, one at 10.30, and another one on Sunday. We've had a lot of questions over the years. Why don't you have workshops? All these festivals have workshops. Well, guess what, folks? This is your chance. If you hold a ticket to any of the... Concert events, just one of those, not a weekend pass or anything else, that gets you into these workshops for free. Yeah. If you don't hold a ticket, you can pay 20 bucks at the door and have access to learning at the elbow of a, of a person like Annie Savage and the Greg Blake Band. Learn how to jam in the bluegrass style. Some of us are living room jammers. We need to hone our skills. This is going to be a chance to do it. And then Jim Hurst is going to do a guitar workshop at 10:30 on Saturday morning. So here's a chance to again learn at somebody's elbow who has played internationally as a wonderful guitar player. And Rachel can talk about the songwriting workshop on Sunday, please.
1: That will be as I said Kirsten and her husband Dan, and they will do songwriting fundamentals, nationally recognized and very warm people. They've been here before several times as True North Band and I will have to say that they sell more CDs and well, basically that's all they have is their CDs, but they sell more to people than almost any other band we've ever booked. And they're so good with the, the one-on-one and not just from the stage, but meeting people. They'll stay as long as people are there to get autographs and talk about how they heard them 15 years ago. <laughs> so we're, we're looking forward to them. And we have one more special thing. If that's too much firepower for our festival goers and beginning jammers are our, our own Janet Wellington is going to have a basic beginner how to jam noon on Friday in on the flat floor and it's for anybody that wants to come in and just learn the basics and it'll literally be etiquette and um, how to how to cut in how to announce your song and if you just want to come and listen and not even participate that's that can happen too
2: and that is the official kickoff for the festival that right there friday at noon and by the way we're rounding out the festival with a couple of food trucks in the parking lot we have the smoked salmon chowder truck coming out of astoria oregon that's going to be supplemented by the local eat well organic noodle truck right here from florence very popular entity we're going to be serving ninkasi beer over the course of the weekend concessions through the window there at the fec and so uh, we're hoping that's just going to make people really happy along the way
1: don't forget the pie.
2: Oh, the pie. Tell us about the pie.
1: Once again, Ladies of Elks are sponsoring and helping run the pie sale, which is popular for people. They can just come in and buy a slice of pie and some good coffee and um, meet with their neighbors, maybe wander in the Fra Art Festival while they're after they're done with their pie. We don't want the pie in the art festival, oh, no. but... Um, it's kind of a pie social for a lot of people who probably would not come in otherwise. That's a lot of fun.
0: That's so you mentioned OPB as, as one of the folks. You mentioned Kiwanis. Now, I'm, I'm sure there's some other people that you'd like to give a shout-out to that, that make this possible. I'm, I'm yeah, so sure I'll just would appreciate
2: it. I'll just do a general statement, George, and say that, uh, again, a, a festival like this does not endure for 18 years without the help of a lot of local co- contributions, basically. And so, again, the festival simply wouldn't exist without this. And so also the committee that works on this is uh, important as well. And KCST is a sponsor, by the way. I'll just mention you guys right out the starting blocks and let Rachel round it out here.
1: Once again, we have Sea Lion Caves as our presenting sponsor. They've been very generous in the past. And the, as I said, the Kiwanis Club... Gene uh, Koning in memory of the wonderful, generous Art Koning who passed away this last year. The Elks Lodge always ready to help with anything for children. They've come on board. Um, Waterfront Depot under Jordan Stone. We're excited to have Waterfront Depot back. Ladies of Elks, as I said. Oregon Pacific Bank, as I said, and Marianne's Bodega Wine Parlor kind of round out the major show sponsors and people that are um, have been so good to us over the years.
2: And we can't forget our in-kind sponsors, the folks like the hotels who provide lodging for our entertainers. Very important. It may not be a cash contribution, but it certainly means a lot to us. It helps out a lot.
0: Okay, again, the dates are January 24th, 25th, and 26th. Um, Two-day tickets, three-day tickets. Give me the prices, how they can get them.
2: Uh, Yes, you can go to wintermusicfestival.org. And see our website and peruse the bands, learn more information about the schedule, etc. You can also go to eventcenter.org. That is the Florence Event Center's website. Prices are as follows. A two-day pass is $92. A three-day pass is 112 Friday night bluegrass is $35. The Saturday afternoon Americana is $27 per person. The Saturday night headliner is 49 And the Folk Sunday is $27. All right. And, of
0: course, you save a lot of money by getting the three-day pass. That's correct. All right. Well, thank you both for being here. Look forward to another great music event coming up. Um, i tell you what, it's, it's always that time of year when you, when you need something to do, and this is a great thing to do for this time of year. Thank you, George. Appreciate thank it. you. Coming up next, we'll take a look at the measles epidemic that was and no longer is with Dr. Mark Schnopper from Nova Health. Right after this, on joining the me now for our, edition our January edition of Our Town, and it is a brand new year. Senator Arnie Roblin has stopped in and agreed to sit down with me today. How are you doing? Doing well, thank you. The wet weather uh, <laughs> kind of—it's kind of expected yeah, this time of year. It is expected, and yeah. it's
3: uh, interesting. I had some friends, a senator, who asked me if uh, her son coming home from college was going to go camping in the uh, Coast Range, and I said.
2: Eh, that,
3: a yeah. testing time to go camping in the yeah, Coast Range. Make sure uh, I think wear, he uh, changed his plans after the
0: storm started. So. Make sure you wear some uh, wet weather gear. Exactly. Did you just come back from Salem? Is that Yes. Where you were? I was in Salem for some meetings yesterday, afternoon, and today. Because that's not usually, that's not a real easy drive. No. I have to go back again
3: this week, too. <laughs> oh, so. you. It's one of those days, weeks.
0: So 2019, uh, a lot of bills passed, a lot of uh, different changes. Um, I'm just going to hit a couple of these that I noted down and you can talk about these or talk about some other ones if you want. Um, Free college tuition for foster children in the system that no longer have to also do community service. That was uh, one that was passed. That was House Bill 4014. 4145 bans guns to those who've been convicted of domestic abuse. Uh, Tougher hit and run laws. Uh, I don't have that particular bill there. Single-use plastics ban. Bill 2509, and Senate Bill 998, rolling stops for bicycles. That was just a few of the things yeah. uh, that people that I've heard talking about recently. Um, pretty typical year, though, as far as things getting Yeah, uh, actually very, very typical. Uh, it, it
3: didn't end typically because um, my Republican colleagues chose to leave um, before the session got over because of the um, cap and trade bill, and they didn't come back to the last day or two, I guess two days. Uh, those last two days saw us pass about 130 bills. So, I mean, a lot happened in those last two days. It's hard to keep imagining. But the House had been working, and so they were all stacked up, ready mm-hmm. to go. Um, so was that the biggest
0: stickler? Then obviously the cap-and-trade was the biggest stickler, but pretty yeah. much everything else was kind
3: of... There were two or three. Uh, cap-and-trade was the big one. They, uh, they they left for a couple of days earlier in the session uh, around uh, funding for the student success bill that I was intimately involved with. I um, Getting funding for schools has been a priority of mine since I got in the legislature. Um, we finally got that done. This new bill, it's the new tax takes effect on the 1st of January, so it just went in. And it'll raise about a billion dollars a year for schools, uh, two billion a biennium. That, uh, brings it almost up to what we had anticipated paying back in the 90s when uh, we passed the, uh, a bill by the Republicans at the time saying that the quality education model is the way we should plan on funding schools. And we've been a couple billion dollars short um, uh, ever since the early 2000s in, in funding schools. So it uh, puts us back in the middle of the pack with respect to state funding for for K-12 education.
0: Now, is, that, is a lot of that funding going toward... Um, the, the individual structures, is it going for teacher salaries? Is it going for uh, supplemental things that teachers need? So, so as people don't
3: always remember, uh, Oregon is interesting in our education funding. 197 school districts. Everyone has a board. They have exclusive rights on how they spend their money. So the state will give them money, 50% of that, half a billion a year, for them to implement the kinds of plans they want to implement. Um, we have suggestions and some other things that are expectations that they need to improve graduation rates, they need to improve attendance, they need to, so they have. we have these bigger goals that they have to work on. And if they meet And those. they have to show a plan about how they're going to go do that. Mm-hmm. But they can figure out what that plan is, they can figure out how they're going to spend that money. So some will use it on class size, some will use it for vocational programs more exclusively than others. That is a part of the bill as well to finish up funding for uh, those new vocational programs we've put in place. Um, they, they might, say we need to make sure that we have activities like um, 4-H, Future Farmers of America, Business Leaders of America. There's a whole bunch of those organizations that have school components as well as others. And they might say there is really good evidence that says if kids are engaged in those activities, they graduated about 95% graduation rate. So how do we get more kids engaged in those kinds of activities? So there's a lot of opportunity for school districts to make decisions about how they're going to go about doing it.
0: Will this think? I, I, maybe I missed misheard you. Will this also include like technical programs and things like that? Yeah, I mean the skills we
3: we've we we made a separate part that says we will fully fund um, Measure Thirty. I can't remember now ninety eight, which had to do with putting vocational classes back in schools and classrooms.
0: Because that seems to be, uh, you know, I when I was going to college, I was thinking, you know, I'm going to have this great degree and I'm going to use it for this, that, and the other thing. And it turns out that you know, I mean, I, I would have been much better. And getting my plumber's <laughs> license, you know, back then, as far as the dollar for dollar value of it, you know. Yeah,
3: my dad was a carpenter and a trainer for uh, apprentices. So, I mean, I always had that opportunity, and looked back at, at that and recognized that you go right out of high school, you get an apprenticeship program in carpentry, you could do really well. My brother, my cousin, uh, who I grew up with, uh, his dad was an electrician, and he became an electrician. He's had a great life and yeah. and made good money and welders, a too. welders, welders, is welders are doing exceptionally well right now yeah. so you know finding a good vocation is a really important aspect in people's choices as they as they move through but making sure that we have those opportunities so that kids um, you don't have to grow up in a carpenter's family to become a carpenter right. because you've had some experiences at the school it would be really helpful
0: well i'm glad i didn't uh continue in my family's my dad was a restaurateur and, and that was something <laughs> that you know led to an early demise for him and i didn't want to be part of that to you know education it's, it's a
3: tough business <laughs> it uh, is a tough and business. a lot of people don't recognize you know they they see the glitziness of it as they come into the restaurant and have the dinner and all that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. And they think, boy, I could cook this dinner cheaper. And then they don't realize, yeah, but you don't have to pay the cook and the bottle washer and the server and all these other people, as well as buy the products and recognize that part of the stuff you're buying is waste is going to go other places. So you're not getting any value for some of the things you're buying. It's a big business. It's a tough business. Mm -hmm. You have
0: to have a good head on your shoulders to make that work. When you have the fast food portion of it, which <laughs> is true. just about getting food. Then right. you have what I consider the luxury dinner, which is where you're going out to be waited on, to be taken care of, right. and you are spending the money for that. Yes. I mean, having been in the restaurant business, I can so much appreciate sitting down at a dinner table <laughs> uh, and having someone wait on me. Isn't that true? Yeah. I agree. Yeah. yeah.
3: yeah. All right, so... <laughs> so going back to your yeah, fir- going back your, to your, your
0: list... Um, now, as a, as a, as a cyclist, right. I love the fact of the rolling <laughs> stop. As a motorist... I don't know that I'm all that because well, we've know. done
3: it. There's been a lot of studies done, yeah. and um, places like Idaho and others have had it for a while. So the question was, is it safer or less safe? And the reality from all the information we kept getting was that when a bicyclist has to stop and lean over on his bike and then get started again, that creates much more problems than if they have good vision, they're driving at a reasonable space, they look, they slow down, they make sure that they, and they just keep on going, is much safer in the long run than having that sudden stop. Figure out where you're going. Um, you know, with, with cleats on bicycles, sometimes you can't even stop. So mm-hmm. how do you figure out how to do all those things? Um, we'll wait and see. Um, part of the, the bill and part of the conversation was that we will keep tracking that. And uh, ODOT will tell us whether there's more or less or whatever accidents caused by that kind of stuff. But I think the indications were from every place that is doing it already that it seems to keep traffic flowing better.
0: And, again, it's a team effort. It's it an effort between effort. the motorist and the cyclist, yep. you know, to know. I mean, because you, you get a motorist that's coming down a side street that's a slower street, but they're doing exceed, 40 speed limits. Yeah. You know, you have to be really careful. Yes, you that, do. And, like yeah. so.
3: and, and bicyclists, for the most part, know that they are the ones at risk. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> they, they lose. Right they, <laughs> In they the collision, they generally lose. lose, yes. The, okay, so that was foster children when that you had, that's been a really big conversation at the legislature the last number of years. Because they don't seem to have the opportunities that some in a-, in a two- 30% of foster kids graduate.
0: Wow. That's a low. Low number. Yeah.
3: And of those, 10 or 15% get through college. So foster kids come to the table with a lot less. And when they turn 18, even if they're still in school, oftentimes the- family that's raising them is not going to get resources from the state, so they are sent off on their own. And mm. that means that some of them can't find a place or a couch to sleep on, so they don't graduate. Um, and then they don't have any other resources from family or others to go on to college. So getting through the paperwork that it takes to get those kinds of things is really tough. So what we're trying to do is expedite the ability for those kids who are bright, have just as much um, oper- uh, personal uh, skills to be a successful college student, to to take away some of the hand, the, the, the issues that, that, that prevent handicap them, them yeah, that yeah. handicap them in their in that deal. So that's our hope and our goal is to have more and more of those kids um, see an opportunity for themselves in getting a college education and therefore raising their level um, in society.
0: Now, what is the what is the overall secondary education system like for the state of Oregon? For say those who may not be in that position. Um, is there, are there opportunities for, you know, kids from regular families too? So I mean.
3: we have, um, a number of programs right now, um, that work for, in general, the one that was the most, um, across the board program, uh, had, had to do with when we passed a couple of years ago. We've, we've kind of made it a little bit more for, um, moderate, medium income families and lower and the highest when we we're expecting. And that, and that says that if you, um, want to go to a community college, it's free tuition for any student who graduates from a high school in Oregon. Um, it's patterned after a program in, in um, it's called Oregon Promise, and it's a program that was first developed in Tennessee. Uh, and it, we have had really great results um, with that. The kids go to college, they go to the community college, they earn credits at the appropriate rate, and they move on uh, at a better rate than the kids that didn't have that before. So. We're hopeful. Um, Actually, we had anticipated not as many of them would continue as they did, but they keep continuing, so we've had to find some more money to make sure that program is viable. But it's a fairly inexpensive way to keep kids in school and to make sure that all people in Oregon recognize that there's values and letting those people go on to college.
0: Now, as I understand it, too, the community colleges are also working on where a student can get a four-year degree now. Yep, that was also approved.
3: That, Most yeah. of those will be technical programs, so you can get a bachelor's of nursing instead of just a nursing license at, at community colleges. There will be also um, degrees in other vocational areas that, that maybe the community college is better suited to do. Um, but yes, there are there is an opportunity now for a four-year degree at a community college. Wow, and Southwestern down here in Coos Bay has had that for a while. They have a uh, a college partnership with Eastern Oregon University, um, and so we have a number of teachers that have gotten their degrees while staying in Coos Bay and going out to the Southwestern to get the college credits. Mm-hmm. and And just like our community colleges have courses in high school, so kids can come out of high school with credits. Um, we're working those same things with the universities and the community colleges in cooperation to figure out similar things that they can do to help. Uh, make geography
0: not the problem for kids getting that next degree. And, and that and that's really is important. That's good. What are some other things that, that you remember being a big deal in 2019?
3: So um, this one, plastics ban, you mentioned mm-hmm. it there, the single-use plastics. There was also a, a straw ban. That didn't happen. So there, yeah. there were a lot of kinds of conversations about how do we improve the um, – Ecology. Uh, plastic bags, when they're in the water out in the ocean, look like jellyfish to people like little sea turtles And um, our aquarium. We got some money for the, the aquarium to upgrade. And they also are the only place between Seattle and San Diego that can recuperate um, larger animals like wow. sea lions and seabirds. They have a big recovery deal in the back. Uh, they get 10 to 12 turtles a year because the turtles swim up in the current that's been warm. They get off into our water. And they get hypothermia. They end yeah. up on the beach. Someone says, "We got this big sea turtle. What do I do with it? Take it to the aquarium." And they try to recover, get them back, and then they fly them down to San Diego to put them in water it's where they belong. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's so strange. there's those kinds of things. Um, the one that uh, caused the most consternation from my Republican colleagues was the idea of um, 2020 was the name of the bill, and it had to do with um, cost of carbon. It was a program designed pretty much under the California plan of having cap cap and trade, um, which actually in its original form in California was really the proposal that was put forward by industry. Um, So we worked on that. It did not pass. Um, And so they're looking at, uh, I've been working with some other people, the reason I was up in Salem today, to see if there's a pathway forward for some similar but different bill. Um, My biggest concern was Whenever you put fuels into the mix, which California didn't do for about eight years, um, that affects everybody. And people in rural areas have to drive a lot more. So Mm -hmm. if you raise costs on gasoline, it creates bigger problems for rural areas than it does for urban areas, where they have lots of choices. Get on a bus, take the rapid transit, do all those other kinds of things. So that was frustrating to me that we weren't having that conversation. Uh, This new bill looks at that in a very different way and actually says for rural areas, um, we shouldn't include gasoline prices at all. So, um, in urban areas, now Would that be for
0: business and and residential? Anybody who any? anybody in the rural area, their gas stations will not be charged extra. Because I, I wonder what what does a cap and trade bill do to an industry like like for like uh, logging here in our state, which has really gone down and kind of you know put a damper in a, a lot of the loggers and logging businesses. How does that affect? You know, the, the, if done correctly, it should
3: not affect them much at all. Uh, they'll be paying similar costs to everybody else that's doing the different kinds of things. The possibility that they have is that that because trees suck up a lot of carbon Uh, they can gain some value from their forest in other ways. Um, Then you have to worry about making sure there's enough supply of forest products for our mills to keep them working. So um, those are big, important deals. Plus, there's a lot of energy used by those sawmills and those others. Uh, Pulp mills use a lot of energy. Uh, So you have to make sure that you don't affect those prices in such a way that it puts them non-competitive with others. So there's a whole section in the bill that goes about Making sure that they're kind of held harmless so they can continue to
0: run and compete with the rest of the people in the world um, and how does the how, how does the state and federal government work when it comes to that does the state have a lot of say over logging rights uh, I guess they don't in federal lands, I guess. Is that right? That's right.
3: And 51% of our state is owned by the federal government. So,
0: Can, can we get rid of them?
3: <laughs> <laughs> lots of people have talked about yeah, it, right? right. I, I just don't see that happening yeah. for very soon. But in the private lands, the state has a lot to say. I mean, we, we get engaged in lots of different conversations about forests. Um, we do some things better than any place else in the world. We fight fires better than anywhere in the West, uh, and they still cost us a lot of money. But um, because we, we are the only government in the world that gets a Lloyds of London policy for fight and fires. So we pay them $5 million for a policy. They tell us that you pay the first $25 million, we'll pay the second $25 million for costs. Um, and, and we have done pretty well with that. Uh, ability to do that, because we take fighting fires very seriously in the state of Oregon. The problem is the federal government doesn't see fighting fire the same way, so oftentimes we have to be right along the border of a federal forest to stop a fire from intruding into private funders. And we need to continue to work in better ways to cooperate with each other. And the federal government is starting to recognize that if they don't thin their forests, they don't clean them out, all they are doing is making a hazard. And I, I think we're getting a little bit better cooperation with the
0: federal government on that and we can we need to keep pushing on that keep our fingers crossed yep yeah all right so maybe a couple other things sure. quickly and um let's see 2020 coming up there uh legislative session starts
3: february the first week of february ends the first week week and a half of march um so it's 35 days uh, in in the session um We'll have to wait and see. It's very fast. So uh, every senator is given one bill. During the regular session, we can have as many bills as we want. During the special, se- the, the short session, senators get one bill. House members get two bills. We don't know exactly why because they <laughs> represent half as many people. I, it, it's yeah. it's just what they've decided. Just strange, yeah. um, and then committees get three bills. So there will be a much... Smaller section of bills that
0: are out there. A couple so, what hundred. do you what do you want to get accomplished in your in your final year here? In- so,
3: um, I have a number of things. I'm I'm trying to figure out if we can weave this pattern to get some kind of carbon pricing policy out that that works and cuts down on carbon and does the kinds of things that we as Oregonians think are important. Um, I also. Uh, have been given a new committee on mental health. Uh, Mental health is a big issue in our state, and we need to figure out what's going on since the 1970s, 60s and 70s, when we decided that we didn't want to house people in mental institutions. um, We've let them go, but we haven't really responded by having the in place the kinds of services that, Those people need. And I think it's a big part of why we have a lot of homelessness right now and a lot of other kinds of issues because we have people who, without some kind of assistance, they aren't going to be able to read a productive life. So we're looking at those kinds of things. We're looking at workforce. How do we make sure we have enough people in the workforce in mental health to make those things work? There's a new group of, um, Clinics that are starting. We were one of a, a group of seven different states that got a federal program, um, which they pay. The federal government pays seventy-five percent of the cost. We pay twenty-five percent. Where you you take mental health and physical health and you put it together in the same clinic. So yeah, the I noticed like they, that,
0: They've got a new Oregon Integrated Health yes, Care. Yeah, one and this, of the ones that started in this Florence.
3: Is, and yes, and this is these are even more than that one. But that's the whole idea right. of these deals. And we're we're getting the information and the studying them right now. Um, we're showing uh, we have a bill that will extend that process. We're hoping the federal government will continue to pay for that extension. Um, and we didn't fund it last time, so they're in dire straits. They need about fifteen million dollars to continue the rest of this. Uh, uh, By name before we start looking at where we go in the future, but the early indications are, and we're going to have a report uh, to our committee next week. Uh, early indications are they are working very, very well, and they're solving problems that haven't been. And they work better in rural areas than they work in metropolitan areas. I went over at the Baker City, no, to. Um, over into eastern Oregon, I'm trying to remember the city right now, to look at one of the programs that are over there. They have their own ranch. They have these people out working and doing things, and they're having a lot of success with kids from all over the state. that get housed in their facilities. So um, it's it's been interesting for me uh, to get immersed in this mental health issue, so I will continue to work on that one. Um, ocean stuff, um, I, we passed 10 years ago now, um, the Marine Reserves. We've been studying them for a while. Uh, There's a requirement for a uh, report on that. We didn't fund the report study. It's about $200,000. The universities have to have to look at it and put it all together. So we have a bill that includes that uh, and some other kinds of things about ocean acidification, ocean hypoxia. Um, About a million dollars worth of uh, requests. And we have an Ocean Science Trust, which I helped along with some other people, to form a few years ago. And some money goes there so that we can do the right research that we need to make sure we're doing the right things on the in the coast. So um, those are the biggies um, from my perspective for this session. Uh, and, and then making sure that the things that we set in motion last time, including the Student Success Act, are implemented appropriately and correctly, um, working with school districts and others to make sure that happens.
0: How often does a, a bill go through, become law, and then uh, not work out the way you thought it was going to? You know,
3: it's interesting you say that one just because my very first session— um, the first bill we worked on was one of those, and you would probably remember it if you were around. It's been 16 years ago, but we pa- they passed a bill before I got there that said school zones will be 25 miles an hour, 24 hours a day. So if you're driving along Highway 101 in Coos Bay, coming into the city, all of a sudden you're going from 50 miles an hour to 25 miles an hour. They gave a lot of tickets in that area, especially in the middle of the night, because people said, what, there's no school at 2 right. o'clock in the morning? Um, and people, The only people that voted against it were police officers in the legislature uh, who said, this isn't going to work, folks. And the next session, it was the first bill we took up was saying, when the lights are flashing, you will go 25 miles an hour. But other than that, you can go the regular speed limit. Um, So there are times um, when our goal is to fix some things that we thought were good ideas before, safety or whatever. Um, And so, and the other thing is that, we write a bill, and then they have to implement it with rules. And the agency makes the rules separate from us. Sometimes the rules they make we don't think truly represent what we were asking for. So we come back to fix some of those yeah, things I as well. I see that in federal politics all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's all, all the time. So so we're always looking at what we did in the past to see if it's moving forward in the right direction. And and we're always about making corrections as time goes on. Um We can't be 100% accurate. Well, hopefully we're— better than 50%. Um, But the the issue is you always have to watch and keep looking. And times change and things change. So some bill we thought was really important turns out not to be so important in the future. I I mean, I I think we're working really hard at getting electrification. So there's a whole bunch of bills out there that have to do with how we pay for roads. has to do with gas tax. You don't have vehicles using gas. You're going to have to do something to fix right. an old bill that, in its time, did a pretty good job. We are not collecting enough money from the gasoline tax to keep our roads repaired, and you can tell that when you wa- drive on any road. So, and the more battery-operated vehicles you have on the road, the worse and, that becomes. So, and of course,
0: they've they've done a li- they've done a change for that, right, to adjust for the registration fees. It turns
3: out the adjustment was very short, minimal, <laughs> minimal. <laughs> it yeah. was not enough. So, yeah. it, it's not filling up the trust fund the way we need it to if we really want to improve. Or keep our roads from falling apart. Mm-hmm. So those are the kinds of things that we will always have to keep
0: working on as well. I always um, thought that if if our roads were impeccable, and then you ask somebody to give you a few dollars to keep them that way, they might be more uh, might be more okay to do that than if they're bad and then we're waiting <laughs> on money to fix them, and then we think the money's there and they're still not getting fixed. So that's, that's
3: true. No, wrong. I mean it's really it's it is really a dilemma for cities yeah. in particular, you know, to kind of keep their roads up um, in Eastern Oregon. There's a lot of counties that have gone back to gravel roads, because gravel roads are much easier to keep up than our asphalt roads.
0: Well, and I've done some motorcycle riding in the eastern part of the state. <laughs> I, I know how some of those roads are. And next thing you know, you're like in a bunch of divots That's going right. through the road. That's right. Yeah, but then you got something like Highway 101 here, which is you know a whole different thing altogether. Who you know, someone else has to take care of that. It goes right through the city here, it goes through Cuspey, goes through. You know, yet you know we have to depend on.
3: The, fe- the state has to take care of their state roads, and 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 or federal government has to help with the federal roads. The problem with 101 is it's built on ground that should never be built on. Um, we have a com- perpetual landslide down in By Curry County. You've got it's another one that's closed up by uh, Newport, mm-hmm. so it's always get out when of Newport. And you have the one by Sealion Key, almost, sea almost always. It's almost always heading know. off into the ocean. Yeah. So we made a choice. We everybody loves. 101 or I do. I love yeah. driving it in the mornings and seeing the crabbers out there and the lights in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, but with that comes, uh, engineering problems that make it a hard road to keep up. Yeah.
0: It's more, it was more like a horse and buggy thing. back in the day. <laughs> we buggy true. Well, I, I appreciate you coming in. I'm, I'm, I know you've got about a year left. I hope it's not our last time we get to sit down, but it's in, in closing. Is there anything else that, that you wanted to touch on that
3: no, I think, you know, it was frustrating to end the session the way we did last time with my colleagues leaving, and I talked to many of them in places where they were, in Idaho and Montana, and trying to get them to come back, because there was a lot of stuff we needed to get done at the end. Um, and some of them were really important for me. There was funding for the aquarium. There was funding for a dam up in Newport. Um, there was a lot of different things that were left undone that we needed to get people back. I was very pleased that they came back, and we got a lot of that work done, um, Ninety percent of the bills that go through, go through unanimously or with bipartisan support. Um, We need to continue to work on that. I think that from my perspective, um, I wish there was more collegiality between the two parties and that people got along and had their discussions because I think that when you truly open up to real discussions, the chances of getting a better bill that doesn't have unintended consequences becomes greater. And when one group decides this is the way it's going to be because we think it's the right way, you open yourselves up for those kinds of problems. And true collegiality, that doesn't mean that you agree. That means you fight it out on every little issue. But you fight it out with an understanding that you're going to listen to each side and come up with solutions that will work for a whole lot of people and an understanding that people who live in real eastern Oregon have different needs and understandings than the people who live in downtown Portland. Mm-hmm. And those of us on the coast have different needs and expectations than those people who live in the valley. So how do you keep those conversations alive and how do we make sure that um, You're not doing it people all are rolling. listening? <laughs> right. People are yeah. listening. Because when it comes down to the population that votes for things, um, the valley controls Oregon. Um, and Portland, in particular, has a big say in any of those elections. We're going to have redistricting coming up in the next section, session. Um, so we're going to have to start having a conversation about what will these districts look like. Is um, that going
0: to be done by an independent group, or
3: is that done no, by we, it's the, done by the legislature. Our the Constitution legislature. requires the legislature to do it. And if they can't, it goes to the Secretary of State, who will then draw the lines. And that happened with Bill Bradbury. The last time um, it was done, I was co-speaker, and we actually did it in the in the— in the legislature, um, both the federal and house redistricting all got done in house, which hadn't happened in about a hundred years. So, it's not but an easy lines, task.
0: Rural lines aren't as, as oh, we as change affected, more, but, no, but, but we they change more, but they're, but they're, it's more diverse, isn't it? Than say in say in Portland metro and that Portland area. In Portland
3: metro, it may be a block that gets changed. Yeah. In ours, I got half a Tillamook County. Well, there you go. And I lost Charleston South. Yeah. Which was not a big part of my district. The new part I got, I, I got I gained extra counties um, besides Tillamook, I got parts of Yamhill and um, uh, what's the other one up there? Polk counties are both. Um, I think it's both. Population wise,
0: did it change much?
3: Population has to stay the same. That's the oh, federal okay. and That's our constitutional one, okay. requirement. Every Senate district has to have almost precisely the same number of. People in it, not voters. So that's why they change it sometimes. So that's because, why it has to be changed um, yeah, because you have more growth happens. into an area. Yeah. So you look at it and you watch the lines just kind of coalescing towards Portland because that's where the population growth is, or Bend uh, is growing at a rate that, and and this particular session, it is anticipated that Oregon will get one more federal representative, uh, wow. because our population has grown that much. It just
0: over the last couple of years looking at Bend, it's the way it's changing, <laughs> it's amazing. So,
3: so that'll be a big conversation this next session as to how are we going to do this redistricting and where's that new federal delegate going to go? Where's that house that representative um to the House going to be seated and whose districts are torn apart to make that happen? So that's all the kind of interesting things that'll happen next session.
0: Thank you for coming in. Thank you for Thank giving you. me your time. Appreciate it. Senator Arnie Roblin, everybody. In the next hour of Our Town, we'll be talking with Dr. Mark Schnapper about measles. We'll also talk with Kirk Monick and Rachel Pearson about the upcoming winter music festival and what it's like to be a volunteer at Peace Health Peace Harbor Medical Center. All in the next hour of Our Town. Joining me now for our November, November. Yeah, listen to me. January edition of Our Town is 2020 already. I can't. Chief Michael Chick with Saysaw Valley Fire and Rescue or Western Lane Fire and EMS Authority. That's correct. And Matt House is uh, here as well. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Thank you for having us. So, I, I was looking at a post. I believe it was on Facebook, and I noticed that um, one of the changes made recently was that you moved an ambulance over to the main fire station. That's correct. Yes. Um, what was the
4: what was the reasoning for that, or what was the reason you guys did that? Well, it goes back to the whole theory about what we're trying to do here, and, and, and Matt and I were just talking about this on the way over. I mean, we've got a new motto. It's one mission, one team. And if you look around the country, certainly in the state of Oregon, most um, EMS and fire departments are one agency. And a little bit different here in, in Florence. Um, both agencies work very closely together and, and have a great relationship um, but we're looking to take it to this next step where we're actually working much more closely together. And and right now, our ambulance district is just swamped with calls, extremely busy. And one of the ways that we thought, well, maybe we can help out with the fire department side. So let's put an ambulance there. And if we need to, we can have firefighters staff that ambulance. So it's worked out uh, very well so far. Like I said, we're working very closely together and and our firefighters are absolutely you know ems qualified medically qualified to be to be running these calls um so it's just you know another tool that we can use to to help out when when we're just getting swamped with calls and and you know with with our our population let's face it it's it's an elderly population so there's a, a big impact on our ems uh, services that we can provide how does that how does that work organizationally
0: then i mean is that is that ambulance still under the, the Western Lane
4: Authority as far as, as responsibility goes? Absolutely. And that's that sort of leads into, I mean, this Western Lane Fire and EMS Authority. So um, we started this in October, officially, uh, Welfia is what we call it. it went live. Um, citizens, Everything has to have a, a, a Exactly, a name there, yeah. It? So I can get a new shirt that said <laughs> Welfia. Um, citizens won't notice any difference. Uh, if they call and they have a fire, uh, Sayusla Valley Fire and Rescue apparatus is going to show up. If they have a medical call, a Western Lane Ambulance District Ambulance is, is going to show up. So what we did was with Welfia, we've just merged administratively. So um, I'm the, my official title is Fire and EMS Chief. So I'm the Chief for the Fire Department, also the Chief for the Ambulance District. And then we also moved in our Operations Chiefs. So Matt and Jim Dickerson on the fire side, um, they now have oversight over both agencies. So personnel, equipment are still in their respective agencies. That hasn't changed at all. We've just merged administratively. So we're saving a lot of money there, which which was very important. And since we were working so closely together anyway, it just makes it a little bit easier now to, to share administrative responsibilities. So yeah, um, equipment still stays with the original agencies. Well, now you mentioned that, that
0: Western Lane has been inundated with calls. So uh, and I noticed something, I believe it was on the Western Lane Facebook page, that that calls overall in the past decade and even in the last year are up from what they've been. How has that, uh, with personnel, been, how has that been for Western Lane in order to handle the increase in calls? Uh, in
5: 2015, we moved our staffing model to different. We actually have five full-time EMS providers, and we have a f- part-time providers as well. And this plays into our big model as well. We're looking at a tiered system, but last year we ran 30, over 3,800 calls, which was 200 more than any other other high year. Um, we, we also have the MIH program that takes away workload as well. But the, we have interfacility transfers where we ran 600 out of those calls, which is from here to Riverbend, here to Coos Bay. So those calls are long durations, take a lot of time away from the district.
0: Were those were those part of the calls that were also an increase over the last year, or was it medical necessary
5: calls that were? Overall across the board, everything increased percentage wise
0: now, how does that work with you know a financial structure there? If you have increased calls,
4: do you have increased funding in order to well we do get some funding from transport fees um, but we're limited as far as with Medicare or Medicaid there's only you only get pennies on the dollars uh, reimbursement for that. Um, but no, we're fixed as far as our revenue goes. I mean, it's a very, very tiny increase each year, as property taxes go up. Um, but we're limited by the state and and how high taxes can go up. So yeah, we have to handle this increased call volume by finding synergies, by finding savings where we can. I was going to say because you, if you increase, you know, 200 calls,
0: that's the the financial cost of that has to be. Pretty extravagant. I mean, you know, because
4: each individual call is not inexpensive. It really is. So, like I said, I mean, it's just and Matt does a great job. And where can we save save funding? Uh, where, you know, can we bring in a part time employee uh, when we have a full time employee off? And and um, can we push out equipment purchases another, another year? Um, it's it's a very you know it's a balancing act that that we have to do but yeah uh funding is very limited but but every uh EMS agency every you know every agency that provides emergency services is in the same boat so we all look for ways to save money constantly
0: and i guess one of the things that that people in your position don't necessarily want to have to deal with or have to do is ask for a tax increase i mean that's probably not the first priority.
4: That is really the last priority. And we want to make sure that we're doing everything we can and we're being fiscally responsible. Um, uh, one of the things I, I do appreciate about the Fire Department and the Ambulance District, they take very good care of their equipment and, and apparatus. And you come down to our fire station, you say, well, those, those apparatus look brand new. And no, they're, they're 25, 30 years old. And, and we have to think about replacing those. But uh, so we do everything we can to stretch out the life of our equipment and our apparatus. Um, if we can delay purchases, we do that. But it's like everybody that's, that's on a fixed income and, and has a budget. You, know, you just have to be real careful about it. Well, I'm sure uh, population increase
0: as well as population aging probably has something to do um, with the increase in calls over time. Mm-hmm. Um, it would seem, though, w- does it not stretch the staff pretty thin if you've got 200 additional calls? In a year's time. I mean, what does that do for staffing wise? Is that does that create a need for, for
5: more or how does that I, I think the best way of describing what we need to do is be more efficient. And we're looking at how can we be more efficient by using our part time employees with our full time employees and with the volunteers in the fire department. To get together combined we have roughly seventy five people between the districts. So how do we maximize those people to, you know, continue to deliver high care, high service delivery models? And we're looking at getting back to the BLS model tiered system, where we can put a BLS car out there to help with more public assist, lift assist, and that'll take away from the advanced life support system, where we can actually put them where we need to put them.
0: Well, and the thing about emergency services too, you never know exactly when you're going to need that person. That's, that's so true. I guess you know that's that's right. where the on call comes, and you know when you respond to an emergency call, what brings more people in to the to the incident that's happening on there. What do you see in You know, in the coming years, in the starting of a new decade, obviously we're dealing with probably one year at a time or maybe even one quarter at a time. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you see things moving forward? Are you guys going to need more staff, less staff? Are are we going to need more apparatus?
4: or How do do you see that looking in the next, say, year to five years? We'll always need more staffing. I mean, that's something that, especially on the the fire side, uh, we rely uh, very heavily on volunteers. Um, the majority of our firefighters are volunteer firefighters. They give up their their time, have the same training and certifications as a career firefighter would have. Um, but you know it's tough to, to devote that much time to your community, and and uh, luckily we do have some some men and women that, that really are are interested in providing that service, so they come and volunteer their time. But you know adding personnel is just financially that's just that's a big hurdle. To, to add career personnel on either side. So um, we'll continue to look for new volunteers. I don't know if you've seen our sign. We're always looking for volunteers. And right. we run academies a couple times a year. Uh, so I think that's going to be our big push. You know, it, well, it's not only this next year, but but continuing. And then we do have, um, we've uh, been looking very closely at, at our finances for the next few years. We've uh, produced some financial prediction models, which, which are, are very important in, in how we plan. Um, we've got some aging facilities that we have to take care of, as well as aging apparatus. So um, right now, we're in the mode of, you know, how can both agencies work more closely together, save money, um, and then how can we, you know, divert some of that money to, to some of the necessary expenses? Yeah, adding uh, career personnel, I, I just don't see that happening with our current revenue base. And I don't see that increasing that much in the future. We are looking at some additional construction in Florence. I know they're trying to put in some some more high density housing, and uh, which raise you know further issues for us. And you get a lot of people, then you have a lot more medical calls and a lot more fire calls. So it's how you balance that. You get an increase in property taxes, but you're also getting an increase in calls.
0: So, so maybe help me out here and understand this because I, I know that. Having a, a new staff member and putting a new staff member on, mm-hmm. it costs more than just that salary that they earn on there. What is the, what is the average cost of, of a new full-time personnel member when it comes down to, you know, with benefits and everything that goes along with that? Oh, we,
4: yeah, it's, it's about 50% increase on, on just when you're looking at benefits and payroll taxes and, you know, with our retirement system, the state retirement system that's in poor shape. Um, so they keep asking us to to contribute more money, um, but you take your basic salary and multiply it by one and a half, and that's what it costs for for an employee. Entry level firefighter is starting at about you know fifty thousand a year, which is which is very reasonable for for a firefighter. Um, paramedic can you know start at about sixty to seventy thousand a year, much more training involved. So there. about uh, what? Uh-
0: Sixty, one twenty, and thirty is yes. uh, one fifty. So about that, yeah. Yeah, it's. Sorry, it's I, I didn't think that. Our,
4: our personnel cost um, anywhere from sixty to eighty percent of our revenue. So it's 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 a very very tight balance that we have to, because you you have to take care of your facilities, you have to take care of your apparatus, but you have to take care of your people too. So do you find that the the addition of the the ambulance at
0: the fire station has does that um, does decrease call times to like the north side of town and stuff like that. Is that is that. also Was that also in the model of wanting to do that?
5: Currently it has not. But in the future, yeah, very much so as we get that tiered system up and running, it will deflect away from the northern calls. Or if we had a serious call, they would automatically go to it, initiate BL, basic life support until ALS arrived. So absolutely it will save time in those critical calls as well as just the routine calls that we can help somebody, you know, that may have fallen down or maybe stuck in a location they're not really wanting to be stuck at out of that position. That's really the goal is to take away the ALS, make the ALS more available for the true emergency calls.
0: Do you see any ambulances going to any other of the station houses?
4: At any, Or is it pretty much just the main station house? Well, and this is not a staffed ambulance. It's just an ambulance that we put there that the firefighters can, you know, if needed and requested by the ambulance district, they can, they can uh, jump on. But absolutely, we would love to spread out our personnel, it's when you're only looking at four or five personnel, it's, you know, you can only go to one or two stations.
0: Now, what about the, um, there's been some talk um, over time about uh, maybe building onto the Western Lane Ambulance Building or increasing that size there, maybe uh, adding Mm -hmm. a
4: fire station to that area. Is that also a potential? We've talked about that. It's, that building is actually owned by the hospital and, and we lease that from them. Um, I don't know that we would add, and we have talked about that, but I don't think that we would add to that facility versus, you know, maybe um, could we, yeah, well, or enhance the stations that we have, some of the fire stations, um, which haven't been used uh, in the past by the Ambulance District, but could we move uh, people out there? thing is, we don't have sleeping quarters at most of our stations. I mean, it's just volunteers Mm -hmm. responding from home. Um, but we could certainly do that, and I think we're, we're looking very closely at that. And it would be nice to spread out. I mean, the ambulance district covers 1,000 square miles. That's a lot of space. And that's coming out of the, the hospital base right now, um, which is a perfect location for, for our ambulance district because majority of our calls are going to be around that area. So that works out very well. But, yeah, any time that we could spread out our resources, uh, we're looking very closely at that. And it would help our response times.
0: What about the station that's located near City Hall there? Is,
4: is some changes need to be made to that? or some... It is, yeah, that belongs to the city. That's not a, we, we um, they let us use that station. Um, we're looking very closely at, at where our stations are, um, how we staff them, how we can staff them. Uh, With limited personnel, sometimes it makes sense, you know, should we have people responding to a different station than than what they do now. So we have several stations that we're not using right now. Uh, We we do use Station 2, and that's the one downtown um, quite a bit. But it is getting old, um, so we have to make that decision. Do we want to put a a lot of funds in there for necessary repairs? Or do we want to move our personnel elsewhere? So that's something that the board really has to talk a lot about and and decide what's the best for our citizens. What's the best way for us to provide emergency care? Has the has the
0: changing of the tsunami zone and and the redistricting of how the the tsunami area
4: works has that affected any of the stations or will it affect any of the stations? Station two, the the station, station um, downtown is certainly uh, that's an issue for that one. So that's something else that we have to take into account. I mean, is it worth putting a lot of money in there? Yeah, if this station would not be able to be used during a tsunami event, all right. Um, let's see, I'm was there anything I'm missing here? I'm trying to think. Um, I guess that's well, people are going to see Western Lane Fire and EMS Authority that name out there. Um, it's not going to change, you know, like I said before, they'll see a fire engine from Siosla Valley Fire and Rescue and an ambulance from Western Lane Ambulance. Um, that won't make any difference, but I think you know going forward, uh, absolutely. I think this is the right thing to do for the districts. Um, luckily, we have two boards that really want to work together and provide the best possible care, and we have uh, employees and volunteers that want to work closely together. So I think you know, other than you know, we know we have some issues we have to deal with. I think we have great personnel, and uh, I think that's that's going to make it much easier to solve a, a lot of these problems. And You know, like I I always say, if anybody ever wants to come talk to me about it, all I have to do is call the station. Uh, My admin staff has my calendar. They'll find an open spot and put them on there. So I love having people come down and talk to me and and give me some feedback. And I know a big issue, maybe we can talk about this in a a future uh, episode here, but um, uh, people are interested about wildland calls, wildland fires, and they see what's going on in California. And uh, and, uh, just real briefly, we're prepared for that. Uh, there's a lot of things you can't prepare for, and and some of those larger fires. But uh, if anybody have any questions like that, um, be more than happy to talk to them.
0: I, you know, th- speaking of that, I was thinking I was just looking at something on the Australia fires right now, yes. and seeing how how incredibly that had just grown and just totally out of control and really not a whole lot you can do with their limited resources.
4: And unfortunately, that's the, the takeaway a lot of times is that, you know, if you get 50, 60, 70 mile an hour winds, it's very hot. Um, all we can do is try and help evacuate people. There's, you can't fight a fire that's moving 70 miles an hour. And that's how fast it moves mm-hmm. with the wind. And I was just yeah.
0: mentioning today about, you know, our rain here. I'd rather have 14 days of continual rain than 14 days of drought.
4: The humidity and the moisture really helps. Yeah. So yeah, we'd be looking at a very hot, very dry period, very windy period, which could happen. It has happened in the past. Um, but it is something that, that we have to prepare for, not only an earthquake and a tsunami, but, you know, wildland fire as well.
0: So you're, uh, you've are you you've put in a few months now. How yeah. How's it going?
4: Oh, it's been fantastic. Uh, my wife and I love it here. Um, I know we had a, a great weather-wise for the summer. And so I think we got spoiled right off the start. But uh, dogs love the beach. And, and uh, we learned a couple weeks ago, don't go on the beach in a high tide event. So Well, oh,
0: you just learned that. Yes,
4: <laughs> we, well, we'd heard about it. But now we actually know. And, and yeah. I think my jacket and my jeans are still drying out from that. That uh, Well, but, at least uh, they're still not in the ocean. <laughs> never that, Well, my sunglasses are. Oh, uh, okay. They're probably on the way to, to Japan right now. But, uh, no, we love the area. We have a great neighborhood. And, you know, uh, my Staff is, is fantastic. Um, You're not um, just saying that because he's in the room with me. I am not. No, he he knows I won't. Uh, I won't say that to, to him. No, it's <laughs> never basically. turn your back on the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm still a diehard University of Washington Husky fan. So oh, that's I'm sorry. It. No, not no, that's, okay. that's. How and, about the Rose Bowl? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's okay. But no, it, it's been great. And and uh, uh, my wife and I are just ecstatic to be here. And and uh, like I said, it's great people, great community. And uh, we really love it here. Chief Michael Schick, Matt House, thank you so much for
0: being here today and uh, have a great day. Well, thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. And stay tuned to Our Town. We'll be talking with Senator Arnie Roblin next. He's going to let us know what legislative things happened in 2019, what's up for 2020, and what he's got left in the tank. On this edition of our Talk, I've got Dr. Mark Schnapper on the line. He is the medical director for urgent care with Nova Health, and uh, we're going to talk measles this morning. Uh, Dr. Schnapper, give me a little background of uh, your medical training, though.
6: So, I'm uh, board certified in emergency medicine. Uh, I've been working at McKenzie Willamette Medical Center here in Springfield, Oregon, basically since I finished uh, 1999 2000. And um, I've been involved with Nova Health since the beginning, but uh, have been medical director of the urgent care side of
0: things for a couple of years now. So one of the things that's been happening in, in recent, I would say, well, recent years now, it hasn't just been this last outbreak, uh, but measles is sort of having a comeback. Can you talk about how that's happening or, or what your perception of, it, of how it's happening?
6: Yeah, actually... Um, Public Health both from Lane County Public Health has been doing a really good job of informing local providers as well as the CDC as getting out information and actually uh, I recently read a report from the CDC that showed that in um, 2019 we've actually had the highest number of cases reported since 1994 and the two main reasons that seem to be relevant are the decreased vaccination rates and uh, additional contributing factors are those that travel worldwide so we have some cases that come to the United States from worldwide travelers who are under or unvaccinated as well but the vast majority of the outbreaks in the United States still occur
0: within smaller populations that have large unvaccinated rates. Can you talk a little bit about what the measles virus is and and how that is contracted, so that we kind of get a little idea of, because you know you think if you yeah. eradicate something, it kind of disappears. So, but then it shows up again. So how does that work?
6: So when when cases are considered eradicated, like smallpox was uh, a long time ago, measles was actually considered almost. Uh, eradicated back in 2000 Um, when the CDC reports a disease that's eradicated it basically falls under a threshold where there are no new cases that pop up unfortunately the measles virus is pretty indolent um, meaning that it, it can live in environments and not really cause significant disease at very very low levels you'll see a few patients uh, kind of pop up with the disease, but there are carriers I hate to use the expression, but to some extent it 's kind of like typhoid mary there there are carrier we all have carriers of infectious diseases, and not everyone gets infected and then those that are um, unvaccinated and can 't fight off the disease before it becomes uh, apparent uh, those are the the new cases that develop, and so it's um, and it's incredibly important for all of us to be vaccinated to protect basically the entire community because you really can't um, go around and, for instance, spray aerial spraying of uh, a medication that might eradicate the disease in its, in, its, um, in its form of kind of living in the environment, so to speak. So
0: as a, as a child of the 60s, I don't remember my parents getting in a fervor about this i mean i remember getting a measles vaccination uh, measles mumps rubella and stuff like that but i don't remember it being so um what i'm not sure the word i want it just so so fretful on people's minds what what has happened today that's different from when we were doing it back then
6: so i think actually that's actually a big misconception um i i as far as the general population. And I think that's one of the things that we, those of us who are in the public health domain are really trying to combat. And that is that because we don't see it on a day-to-day basis, we lose the, um, in kind of the relevance, if you will. And actually, if you talk to patients who are older, older the older population who did have it within their community. They will share with you cases of they knew a friend who was hospitalized in the ICU because they had mumps or measles, They, family members died. I mean, if you look at children death rates from the 1940s and 50s before the vaccination was available, they were much higher than they are today. Um, you know, a classic example, measles is just one of those diseases that the population at a whole was accustomed to, this is just something you get, whether it be chickenpox, polio, um, smallpox for that matter, you know. And so the thing is, is in, in those days prior to the vaccination, some of the reasons why people don't think of it as as such a serious illness is because it was so prevalent. In fact, you're considered immune if you were born before, I believe, 19, If uh, I can't remember the date off the top of my head, I apologize, but um, before the vaccine was available because it was so prevalent. But that didn't mean there weren't thousands of cases of children and adults who were hospitalized some getting critically ill with pneumonias and meningitis, that that didn't happen. It did happen. It just was on such a large scale that patients got measles that it was just felt to be something that they lived with. Um, and nowadays, we don't see those types of illnesses on a broad scale, so we kind of diminish their importance Um even though they can be quite life-threatening when there really is no specific
0: treatment. And even too, back then, we didn't have the, the information highway that we have today to bring us the information of what's going on in other communities. So we may not have been, if we weren't in a pocket that suffered from a measles outbreak, we weren't necessarily um, understanding of how um, how deep the, the issue went. That's absolutely true. Now, what a in, in today's I, I've got to touch on this because I, I will have people that will yeah. call me up and, and harass me because I didn't mention this. But in today's yeah. vaccine regimen, is there an opportunity for someone to just get a measles vaccination or is it still lumped with several different vaccinations at once?
6: Yes, it's uh, the measles vaccination is part of the measles, mumps, rubella. You can opt in for a varicella component as well to decrease the number of injections, if you will, um, but in and of itself, it, it only comes in either form with mumps and rubella and with um, w- then with or without a varicella uh, component as well. We have to remember that the reason why it's also combined is to decrease, of course, the number of vaccination injections a child or adult would get, but also, you know, rubella and mumps uh, can be also severe, especially rubella for pregnant women and the subsequent infant mortality and problems that that can occur. So the, the reasons for combining them are to improve effectiveness as well as prevent serious disease kind of in... Um, with kind of one, with one vaccination.
0: So, what is the what is the situation currently like right now? I think I heard a report about a week ago that they uh, they considered it at least in Oregon as as um, the outbreak was over. But is there any? Has there been any new cases since that last report?
6: Correct. There's have not been any new cases since the last report, and the reason um, it's considered over is because of the transmission. Um, and the incubation period has passed from the last known case. So if a new case were to arise, it would create a new sort of epidemiologic pattern that you would have to try and isolate where it came from because the original infected person who had led to the outbreak here in Oregon, the virus should, Not should no longer be present amongst that population that he interacted with.
0: And measles doesn't have like a a seasonal thing like a flu does, right? I mean, this can be contracted anytime, any time of the year, any any conditions. Is that correct? Okay. So, so the number one thing people need to do is they need to they need to schedule a vaccination. What about uh, older folks, older Americans? Do are, are they safe now, or do they need to, is there a, you know, like a booster or something that, that they need to look into?
6: No, again, we talked about how older patients who were around prior to the time of vaccination, that it was so prevalent in the community, but that they were, in essence, they're, in essence, deemed immune based on the fact that it was prevalent in their community. Um, and uh, we know that to be the case if you were to actually measure titers and the like it's really for those patients where it wasn't uh endemic in the community which would be those born uh in the later in the more recent years and it's part of the vaccination schedule for children as, as well as adults if they're not sure they should talk with their health care provider and go over when they might have been vaccinated there are ways to kind of figure out whether or not you were vaccinated or not. Uh, as a child, if there's concerns, they can look through records. They can check for antibodies presence if need be. But the vast majority of those patients who were born before 1957 are considered to be immune based on the prevalence of disease and the lack of vaccination.
0: So what information can you give parents to, uh, especially those who are are? against vaccinations what sort of information can you give them to kind of ease their concern um because i i know that when i when i talk to the 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 opposite side of the the vaxxers most of them are not totally against vaccines they're just they're just against the amount of vaccines that a child has to get at one time so what can you do to 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 speak to their fears
6: yeah it's it's a tough question i think um You know, I certainly understand it seems like a lot is being given at a young age. Again, I think it goes back to understanding why it's being done in the first place. The vaccines are being done for the vast majority of illnesses to prevent things that we don't have true treatment uh, capabilities for. And so the risks of problems with the vaccines are vastly outweighed by the potential for serious illness in a child. And the caveat to measles and some of these vaccines with regard to older children is there are several vaccines that are not given. So measles vaccine is not given to a child until they're one. And so the importance of getting Everyone vaccinated on the timely pattern is because of those really young infants. They require the herd immunity that we all carry by being resisted by having our vaccines. So they're not even given a vaccine until they're one year of age. So everyone who interacts with a newborn child in the first few months of life needs to be protected for that child. Um, The risks, unfortunately, um there nothing is without any potential. there's certainly some potential of adverse event, but again this it's vastly lower than the problem of if a child were to get sick with the actual disease and to try and ease fears a little bit, I know that vaccines carry a certain stigma. I would be naive if I didn't understand that. And I think that as healthcare professionals, all we can try and do is provide appropriate education with an understanding that there, unfortunately, were published reports of problems with the vaccines, which are not accurate, and they need to be outweighed by the preponderance of evidence of how safe the vaccines are and it is something that i think we as healthcare professionals need to be open to i know in our primary care uh, clinics you know our providers are would like the opportunity to talk with patients and family members with regard to vaccine questions directly one-on-one so that they can have a more educated and personal uh, experience with a provider to try and uh, fill in the blanks where maybe there are questions that exist.
0: So if people do have questions, is there is there a number that you guys have set up that, that they could call to get this information or should they contact their primary care physician?
6: They should contact their primary care physician. Um, and we have, as I mentioned, we, um, as part of our system, we have urgent care, primary care uh, clinics that are seeing and taking patients. We feel that this is a discussion that really should take place on a on a more personal level for people who have questions rather than um, necessarily... Uh, having a a 1-800 number if you will. I definitely feel that the web is a great resource but I think it's important that people use good resources. The CDC for instance is a great resource for anyone who wants to look up questions about things whether it be measles or other infectious disease and that's at cdc.gov and they have very good direct, clear information that's available for anyone with access to the web.
0: All right. Dr. Schnapper is the Medical Director for Urgent Care for Nova Health. Dr. Schnapper, thank you so much for uh, giving us this information today. It's always good to have uh, education when it comes to our, our health. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for your time. And coming up next, we'll talk to a couple ladies who are part of the Peace Health Peace Harbor Medical Center Volunteer Corps. Right after this on the January edition of Our Town. Joining me now are a couple of ladies from uh, Peace Harbor volunteers, Gloria Padero and Sula Odette, are here today. And we're going to talk about maybe some of the needs that are at the hospital there for volunteers. How are you ladies doing?
7: We're doing great. Yes. Good.
0: So there's always uh, there's always needs for volunteers in the hospital, correct? Yes, yes. C- correct. I mean, and so what kind of things do volunteers do? What, what kind of things can they do at the hospital?
8: Um, They assist doctors. Um, They greet people that come in. They supply care to some of the patients. Um, Some deliver magazines. We are in a, a sewing group. So we provide blankets to some of the people in intensive care that need them. And we also sew and provide products for the gift shop. And there are... Doctors that come from out of town that need assistance for us to check them in and out, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. There's various other areas where people are always needed.
0: Now, Gloria, you were telling me that um, in the month of December, I think there were 12 births. Right. And you guys in the sewing group supplied blankets for the babies?
7: Right. We uh, knit or crochet blankets for the babies, plus little hats, and we make them in blue and pink. So, um, but uh, yeah, every baby gets a blanket and a, a hat. <laughs> so,
0: over a year, how how many blankets? I mean, including intensive care patients, would you say you guys knit or crochet? A
7: Hundred, over a hundred, maybe. Wow. Yeah, it's quite it's quite a lot. I know. I I just turned in three blankets, <laughs> so uh, it was you know.
0: Now, as a, as a volunteer doing this, uh, do, you also, do you also donate the materials that you use to make these?
7: Yes, they give us the, the yarn. And uh, if uh, someone wants to come in, it's never learned, it doesn't know how to crochet or knit, we'll gladly teach them. We give them the yarn, needles, and uh, we, we meet at spruce Point. Um, and it's great. I mean, you know, the ladies are wonderful. We get cookies and coffee even. <laughs> do,
0: you ever, do you ever get uh, do you ever get men who volunteer for that?
7: Not yet, but no? we'll gladly teach them if they want to come in and learn.
0: When I was young, my mom taught me how to knit, and I haven't done it since I was, you know, a teenager, so I probably could relearn it, but it's one of those things, it's like it was a neat skill to have back then, and my mother all through her life, she I mean, she made these, in the in the 70s, she made these giant sweaters for my dad and I that were like all the way knee length. <laughs> you know, we were, I'm 6'2", so it was uh-huh. like quite a long sweater. But I always, always enjoyed wearing it because it's kind of a neat, a neat skill to have. What are some of the ways that, that, that people can get involved? You mentioned a few of the areas that there are needs in. Are there other areas too that, that people? Are there any transportation things or stuff like that that you guys perform as volunteers or is that a different There section? is
8: There is a um, golf cart for the hospital campus that we have a group called La Paloma and we have drivers for them and they deliver things between all the different offices and to the labs at the hospital. That's as far as the
0: driving is concerned. So what kind of what kind of special skills does a volunteer need? Is it, is it mainly about the heart? Yes, you know, yes. About- people
8: skills and want to give. They want to give their love, all their compassion, all their assistance to anybody that wants to come in and be a volunteer or any of the patients. We even just sit bedside and read or talk to people.
0: And I imagine the amount of hours one wants to put in is limited only by what they're willing to do, is that? Of course, yes. Much? If you
8: have an hour a week, come sign up, be a volunteer, we'll have a place for you. Two hours a week, six hours a week, however many you'd like.
0: How many, how many volunteers do you like to have on hand? I mean, what's, what's a good number of people? I, I guess you'll take any number you can get, but what's a good number that you would like to see staffed on a regular basis?
8: For each individual area, it varies. Um, we would like a minimum of probably six per area on campus. As Gloria said, our sewing group has about 12 to 14 ladies, and we're off campus. Mm-hmm. Um, there's never enough. We need subs to fill in for people who want a vacation, or we get ill ourselves and need time off for that. And so we always need subs, on-call folks. So at least probably six people per de- per department.
0: Now, how do they how do they get involved? What do they need to do in order to um, to get signed up?
8: We have what's called W O M, which is word of mouth, and we work on that daily that's around town. <laughs> that's why we're here. That's why yes, right. that's why we're here. Yeah, word of mouth. Um, if a person's interested. We have a lady's number, a name that they can call, and um, we also have applications at the gift shop at the hospital. Right in the lobby, on the left is the lobby desk, which we also man or lady, whichever wants to work there, <laughs> and the gift shop applications are picked up there and dropped off there. They, if they have, want more information about details of where they can volunteer or questions about the application, then they can call Monica Kozman and her phone number is five four one nine zero two eight three zero eight. And the application process is fairly simple and straightforward as you would assume. There are certain protocol we have to follow at the hospital, okay. like your T B tests and things like that in order to be able to work directly in the hospital.
0: Right, make sure your shots are up to date.
8: Yes. Like mm-hmm.
0: Gloria, tell me a little bit about the satisfaction that volunteers get from contributing.
7: Well, it's, to me, it's uh, nominal. I mean, it's wonderful, actually. It's, uh, I enjoy doing the blankets. I, as you see, I'm slightly handicapped. Um, and uh, so it's, it's to me, it's really worthwhile. I think people would enjoy coming in. Uh, I've met so many people. Sula, my friend. I mean, she's become my friend, and uh, it's it's really quite quite not, um, good.
0: So, have either of you done other than the sewing? Have you done other volunteer work within the hospital, or has it mainly been the sewing?
8: The hospital used to have a newsletter, and I was the editor of the newsletter, myself and another lady. Um, comprised the newsletter, delivered the newsletter around town and by email to folks to get word out. Um, Personally, I don't work at other areas, but we do have lots of women that do multiple areas of volunteering. We have, I mean, a person can work possibly short stay in the morning and in the afternoon, they can take a shift at the lobby where they greet visitors that want to go in and see someone and or a couple hours at the gift shop there's multiple areas
0: well give, give the number again in the lady's name that uh, that they need to contact if they want her to.
8: name is monica kosman that's k-o-s-m-a-n and her phone number is 541-902-8308
0: and again the most important thing is to be willing to give have, have good people skills and uh I'm sure that if you're going to be working within the hospital, a bedside manner would be a nice thing. A good bedside manner would be a nice thing to have, too. Very, Mm
8: very, yes. And all of our ladies, as you can figure, and men, right now, currently, our president is a man. And as far as since I've been with the volunteers, which is approximately 10 years, this is the first gentleman that we've had as president, which is very nice, a nice change. But we have men working in lots of different areas of the hospital and on campus, and yes, and it's just everyone wants to give. The satisfaction is beyond what you'd believe. Even being behind the scenes where the recipients don't realize where it comes from and all we put in. There's ladies that have put in, I mean, 5,000 hours wow. of volunteering. There's, that is not unusual at all. Myself, I've probably got, oh, how many hours? I've, I've got over 5,000 myself actually. Mm-hmm. And we've got it from all age range you can imagine. There isn't any limit on age range.
7: So
0: you can be younger or older. Mm-hmm.
7: Right, if the younger mm-hmm. younger ones want to come in, I mean, we really would appreciate it. And then they would learn how to give, you know, and share. And, and they might like... end up
0: having a career in, you know, medical health at some point because Abs- of the absolutely, experiences they have. Absolutely. Yes,
7: yes. Also, we uh, we have a luncheon once a month. And it's an appreciation luncheon for the volunteers, uh, and it's and then we have speakers that come. Is that at the
0: cafeteria there at the hospital, or is it somewhere? Is it all? No, the it's campus?
7: usually up at um, the event center. The event center, okay. right? Uh, and it's a, like I say, it's coming up in next next week. Yes, yeah, next next, Thursday. next Thursday we're going to have a luncheon. Right. So it's uh, it it's really great. I mean, great. I can't say enough uh, myself. It's got me out. <laughs> because you know, and also
0: so Laudette, uh, gloria panero thank you so much for joining me today and we'll get the word out and let people know and hopefully you'll get some good response thank you george thank you george I uh,
7: really appreciate it
0: and that concludes our January edition of our town. Tune in again next month, as we will do it all over again with new guests. Over again, with new guests, 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 over again with